Well, if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to please turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. We'll be looking specifically at verses 11 to 32. Now, right away, this might be a passage of Scripture that is very familiar to you. It's often referred to as the parable of the prodigal son. Now, the word prodigal is a term we really don't use anymore, but it means reckless or wasteful. And so it's going to be through this son's recklessness that we get this this beautiful picture of who God is. Chapter 15 as a whole is is all about lost things. But but here's, here's the most important part, the part you absolutely cannot miss about this chapter. Chapter 15 is all about God's joy in finding those lost things. The parable we are about to read is the third one that Jesus gives in the chapter. He's already told us about a sheep that was lost and the shepherd's joy in finding it, even though he had 99 others just like it. Uh, Next, it was the woman with the silver coin and the joy she had in finding it, even though she had nine others just like it. In each of these parables, Jesus is reinforcing to us over and over again God's delight in finding things that are lost. So let's read Luke chapter 15. We're going to read verses 1 and 2 first, uh, then we'll continue to verses 11 to 32. If you happen to have your, your little insert, verses 1 and 2 are already there for you. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to the father, said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, and ran and embraced him, and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, These many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. 
And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Now before we consider this parable, let's take a moment to to pray and ask God's help as we study this passage. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we study your word, I pray by your Holy Spirit, that you would open our minds and our hearts to its wonderful truth. Help us as we read this passage so that, uh, that by doing so, we would be moved by your majesty and reminded of your grace. For we ask these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. Now, I would invite you to please keep that copy of God's Word open there in front of you, especially as we make our way through uh, each of the verses of this passage this morning. So, the first question is, why did we read verses 1 and 2 first? Well, we have to understand why Jesus is, is teaching this parable to begin with. You see, the Pharisees are on Jesus' case because of who he's been rubbing shoulders with. Jesus has been hanging out and dining with sinners, and the Pharisees were criticizing him for it. And so Jesus tells the, par- uh, the Pharisees and the scribes three parables, and all these parables are reinforcing the same thing. So please don't miss this. If, if, if you hear nothing else from me today, I, I want you to walk out of here knowing that God utterly delights in finding and saving lost sinners. So in order to see that delight, we're going to follow the actions of this prodigal son. Now, there are three big parts to this story, and those three parts are going to be our, our three main points as we, as we move through. We're going to look at the prodigal son's rebellion, his repentance, and his restoration. Rebellion, repentance, and restoration. So let's look at that first point, the prodigal son's rebellion. Now, verse 11 sets the stage for us by letting us know who the characters are in this story. It's a father and his two sons. Now, we're going to get to that older son later, but Jesus, for now, is going to direct our attention to the younger son. Now, you absolutely cannot read verse 12 calmly. There's anger in the younger son's voice. Because in this culture, sons didn't make demands like this to their father. But that's exactly what we see the son doing here. Jewish custom stipulated that when a father died, his his property was divided among his sons. But here's the thing. That would have never, ever been done while the father was alive. So when the younger son comes up and demands his inheritance, he's effectively saying, Father, you are dead to me. So let's treat today like it's your funeral. All he wants is what we see in verse 12. Give me the share of property that is coming to me. He doesn't want his father, just his father's things. In other words, this younger son is saying, here's your death certificate. Sign it and give me what is mine. Now, think about the weight of what the younger son is saying. The son no longer wants anything to do with his father. Now, if you're a parent, can, could you imagine hearing something like this from your child? Think about the pain words like this would cause. 
And so from that pain, we might expect the, the father to respond in anger or maybe severe discipline, maybe even banish his son forever. But the father doesn't do that. Look what he does in verse 12. He divides his property between them. So right away, Jesus is keying us into the fact that this father is different than what we might expect. But, but also, don't take for granted that word property. For us today, property may, may mean nothing more than the stuff that's, that's ours. But in this culture, property, land, it was sacred trust. It, it was your God-given things, and God gave you this stuff, trusting you to take care of it. It was also your very livelihood. You know, oftentimes when, when the biblical writers use the word property, they, they use it in a way that, that means life. So here we see the father isn't just giving his son a portion of his assets. He's giving part of his very life to his son. And then in verse 3, we're told that after the son gets his inheritance, he leaves for a far-off country. Now, we need to notice two things here, the relational separation and the physical separation. First, let's look at the relational separation. We have, we have to see that, that the breakdown of what was a good relationship, father and son. And second, that relational separation that the younger son craved for so long is now matched by physical separation. So these two things, the physical separation, the distance that this son is creating between he and his father, and the relational separation, the breaking of this father and son relationship, are the result of a much deeper problem. And that's what the younger son is going to show us, our deeper problem. Because the younger son shows us what our natural hearts look like. It's this, this physical separation that's a result of a relational separation that naturally exists in our hearts. Just like the younger son, we want to naturally put distance between us and God. We want to journey into a far-off country because our hearts naturally take no pleasure in God. Ever since the, the Garden of Eden, the human heart has been in prideful, selfish, and open rebellion to God. Now, if, if, that somehow, if that statement somehow offends you, or you say, I don't believe that, then Christ crucified on the cross is not going to make any sense to you. That's because right out of the gate, Jesus wants us to be shown that the place where we all need to start is with an honest understanding of who we are and the reality of our hearts. So in addition to the reality of what our hearts look like, we get to see where hearts like that lead us. So look with me at verse 14. Now I will say that the biggest fear I had when I was preparing this sermon comes from right here in verse 14. Because on the one hand, there's this temptation to think that the son, that since the son isn't a Christian, that's the cause of his, all of his problems. Because he's a Christian, that's, or not a Christian, that's why he's experiencing this famine. Or you can make the mistake of thinking that being a Christian somehow makes your problems go away, that famines don't happen to you. But those are all horrible ways of looking at verse 14. Now, what Jesus has 
What Jesus has in focus here isn't our worldly problems. He's not concerned with our economic or or physical well-being. It's our spiritual well-being and where our sinful hearts will ultimately lead us. And we see that here in verse 14. But as, as the picture of our hearts gets clearer, things only look worse. Look at verse 15. It says the son went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. So in other words, here's a Jew who who has now become a servant of Gentiles. Now, it would have been unthinkable for a Jew to ever do something this humiliating, but, but Jesus keeps adding to the shock factor. He tells us that not only is he a servant to Gentiles, but that he's also working with pigs. Now, Pigs in this culture were considered to be unclean. So if you worked with them, then you became unclean. So the son not only finds himself being the lowest of the low, he's also unclean, which as a Jew meant that he was unworthy to be in the presence of God. Jesus is driving the point home that this son is in the worst condition possible. Now, his circumstances would have been repulsive to the scribes and Pharisees that Jesus has been telling these parables to. In their eyes, this son would have been beyond redemption. He's unclean, foodless, penniless, homeless, and fatherless. He's utterly destitute. But again, we have to remember that the younger son's outward circumstances are an allegory of his heart and of our hearts. So our hearts, corrupted by sin in their natural state, will lead to our destruction. So if sin, if rebellion is the problem, then what's the, what's the solution? Well, that brings us to our second point, the prodigal son's repentance. Now keep in mind how at the beginning of the story, the younger son had it all. He had everything, but by his own impatience, by his own ungrateful behavior, he now finds himself in a pig pen. No one's willing to help him. No one is willing to give him any food. The younger son is being viewed quite literally as having less value than the pigs. But then in verse 17, there is this this shift in, in the thoughts of the younger son. Please, please don't miss this. Because right here in this moment, Jesus is is bringing all three of these parables together. Now, before in chapter 15, all of the things that were lost were either objects or animals. But now, we find ourselves being identified as lost. We are naturally lost. And the son's coming to the realization of that condition in verse 17. So remember how earlier his thoughts for for his home and his father were terrible? He wanted nothing to do with any of it, and he did everything he could to rid himself of those ties. But now, even after all of his efforts, he couldn't forget his father. He couldn't forget his father's house. He couldn't forget his father's love. And so aware of his behavior, he has this idea that at the very least, it would be better to be a servant in his father's house than to die of hunger. And so verse 18 is that that pivotal moment. 
the son finally realizes what he's done. But I want you to see what the son does right and what he ultimately does wrong. First, verse 18, he's right to recognize and admit his wrongdoing. He's right to say that he has sinned against heaven and his father. But even though he rightly recognizes his sin, he still thinks salvation is going to come by his own efforts. His problem is he's thinking like a servant, not a son. He thinks his sins are too many, that the cost is too high. He thinks he's going to have to earn back his father's favor by becoming a servant. And so, verse 19, he, he begins to, to rehearse his, his return, the things that he's going to say on his return. And you can, you can almost imagine him saying this, this uh, verse over and over and over again to get ready for that, that pivotal moment in verse 20. Now, as, as long as I live, I hope I never forget studying this passage with the students in our living room in Bologna. We, we had a student from Egypt named Nino, and when we got to verse 20, he chuckled at the page. Now, that, that got all of our attention, and we all looked up to him, and we could see him kind of like, well, don't y'all, don't y'all get it? We wanted to know what made Nino laugh, and because Nino was from, uh, from the Middle East, he was kind of our insider into all things Middle Eastern culture, and we were about to have one of those moments. And so when we were like, Nino, why did you laugh? You know, he kind of had this little grin, and he told us that in this culture, just like Middle Eastern culture today, fathers don't run. It's undignified. In Middle Eastern culture, mothers run, children run, but never fathers. But that's not what we see in this verse. Look at what it says in verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran. The father ran. Not only that, the father ran a long way off to his son who was a long way off. He was looking for him. You can almost imagine him day after day looking off into the horizon, just, just looking and hoping, for, hoping to see his son's silhouette. Now, maybe you have never thought about God the Father in this way. Maybe when you think of your own father, there is pain, there's hurt, and there's sadness. Or maybe there's, there's no memory or image at all. And so I beg you, I beg you to fill your mind with this image of the perfect father. This is what God looks like. This is the love that he has for lost sinners. This is the image of God Jesus wants to impress on our hearts. And God has seen your heart. And at the, at the very moment of conviction of sin, from a long way off, he is running to embrace you, to restore you, and give you forgiveness. And here, in that embrace, in verse 21, the son begins to speak to his father. Now, look at the difference between what he wants to say in verses 18 and 19 compared to what he gets to say in verse 21. Now, he gets through the first bit just fine, but his father doesn't let him finish. He, he cuts him off before he can say, treat me as one of your hired servants. The father is not going to let that happen. Instead, he, he lavishes his love on his restored son. 
And we see that in verse 22. The, the robe and the ring come out, and those symbolize kingship and sonship. But then there's the third item, the shoes. In this culture, slaves didn't wear shoes. So if we had any doubt whether the son was going to have to earn his way back into his father's house, this tells us that that will never be the case. This son is never going to be confused with a servant in his father's house. So here we have the father visually declaring, this is my son, and he is never, ever going to have to earn his love. From a far way off, he already had it. And this is, this is what happens when somebody becomes a Christian. When, when you become a Christian, it's a miracle. If you are a Christian, you are a miracle. And God has said these, these words in verses 23 and 24 about you. Bring out the fattened calf, strike up the band, let's have a feast and celebrate. You were dead, and now you are alive again. That's the miracle. You were dead, and now you are alive again. You were lost and now you are found. Again, this is the joy God has for lost sinners on full display. So if rebellion, if sin is the problem, repentance is the solution, what's the result? Well, that's, that's our third point. We get to see what that restoration of the prodigal son looks like. Now, this whole time, our focus has been on the younger brother, but there's one person in this story who doesn't see the beauty of bringing back a lost brother. So now Jesus turns our attention to the older brother. Now verse 25 to 27 all happen in rapid succession. We find that the older brother's working out in the field and at this party. Uh, as things are getting started, he hears some noises and he wants to uh, go and uh, investigate what's happening. But when the servants tell him what's happened, what does he do? In verse 28, we see that he gets angry. He gets angry about how his father is treating his younger brother. And so what, what becomes clear through the older brother's attitude is that he is also lost. In fact, he was farther away than his younger brother, and he was still on the farm. Look at what the older brother tells his father in verse 29. He says, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. The older brother had done everything right. But here we see his true heart. Because when the older brother thinks about celebrating, his party doesn't include his father. In other words, he only wants his father's things not his father. Sound familiar? Even in verse 30, it's clear that the older brother doesn't want to accept the younger brother. Look how he refers to him. He doesn't say, my brother. He says, this son of yours. The indignation is incredibly evident. This isn't the kind of conversation a child of God has with their heavenly father. So it would be, it would be a mistake to look at verse 31 and read it as if it is a father speaking to a believer. This is a story of God's love for lost sinners and those who are angered by his grace. And so remember, Jesus has been teaching these parables, this parable, to the Pharisees and scribes. They'd been angry with Jesus for dining with sinners. 
And here, they're going to come face to face with their own self-righteousness. Now, verse 32 is the big point Jesus is trying to make. The older brother doesn't respond to this statement that the father gives, so we're, we're left to wonder what his response would be. But there's also the question for us, who are we in this parable? Pastor Tim Keller makes probably one of the best observations I have ever come across regarding this, regarding this passage. He says, the two brothers show us that there are, are two ways to be spiritually lost. We can be like the younger brother and be lost by being bad. Or we can be lost like the older brother by being good. Now, how does that work? Well, it's, it's easy to, to imagine how you can be lost by being bad like the, like the younger brother. But how can, we, how can we be lost like the older brother? It's because an older brother is someone who says, I've been to church, I've obeyed, I've prayed, I've done all of the Christian-y things, I've checked all the boxes, I've got all my religious merit badges. Now, God, you owe me. Are you being the elder brother? Do you think that it's by your own righteousness that you will be saved? Or do you think somehow God owes you for the things you have done for him? And if you're a Christian, this passage is here to tell you, do not forget the fact that you used to be dead and lost, but by God's grace, you have been found and made alive. This passage is reminding you that, that your righteousness is an alien righteousness. It's a righteousness that doesn't come from you. It's Christ who makes us holy. It's Christ alone who makes us worthy to be in the presence of the Father. Or on the flip side, are you the younger brother needing to repent of your sin and seeking reconciliation and forgiveness? If you're not a, not a Christian and you, and you think it's going to take a mountain of effort to, to make yourself worthy of God's love, see the restoration here that comes through repentance. From a long way off, see God running toward you. See God's utter delight in finding and saving you. So may that truth always be on our hearts. May, may this image of the Father always be on our minds. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we always remember your goodness and unmerited grace towards us. May we never try to be our own Savior, but rest fully in the arms of a Father who runs to us, a Father who loves us and, and clothes us in majesty and, and throws a party for us. Help us to be mindful that such grace is only possible because of Jesus. Thank you, Father, for your perfect Son, the Son we could never be. We praise you that it is through Christ that we are restored. And we ask and praise you for all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.